Welcome to the DFD, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we chat with industry leaders who share insights and their experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the DFD Dairy Farming Discussions podcast. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer. This week on the podcast, I've got Dustin Gamble, the procurement manager for Surgeon in Ontario. And I know, Dustin, I've been asked this a lot in the last week or so. Um, so I thought it'd be a really, really interesting thing to talk about is markets and booking feeds and global supply chain issues. I know there's a, there's a lot of things going on in the markets of uh, with things that we can't control. So as let's uh, maybe talk about some of the things that we can control when it comes to feed pricing and things like that. So why don't you say hi, Dustin, and introduce yourself again, and, and uh, we'll start talking about feed bookings. Perfect. Thanks for having me, Keith. Always appreciate the opportunity to connect with you uh, and producers and, and uh, just looking forward to, to walking through markets and, and uh, answering some questions. Yeah, so I'm sure you haven't had this question in the last little bit. Should I book my feed right now? <laughs> and we've had that coming at us a million different ways. And, and sometimes it's a really easy question. Like if it's, uh, if it's maybe some hog producers in certain regions and we're seeing different, uh, you know, uh, margins, then, I mean, if your margins are real strong and you can lock things in, it's a bit of an easier conversation for, for some other guys where maybe things are a little tougher, a little less well-known, I guess, uh, you know, we haven't got as much traction as we thought we would with, with maybe some bookings with the market resetting in the last little while. Yeah, I know just from my own end, I know notice like soybean and uh, like soybean meal and canola have kind of backed off DDG kind of, but not really. I think I looked last looked, it was kind of high two still like $200 a ton, like high $200 a ton, you know, 280 plus. And, um, I guess what are some indicators that we should be looking at booking other than, you know, maybe just looking at uh, budgeting for the year to come or, or the short term to come with some market pressures and things like that. Yeah. Dis- distillers right now might be a bit firm with a lot of plants taking downtime um, at the end of the corn crop going into new crop. Um, so that's maybe more local and maybe more us based, you know, has happened over the last month or so. Um, so I, I guess the supply is a little more limited there, but, uh, but, but really when you look at the grand scheme of things, that's maybe just a local dynamic because, um, the U S is producing, you know, as much ethanol as almost ever. Um, so, so the distiller's availability should be strong. Um, but, but again, supply and demand on the ruminant side, really juggling all the different, uh, factors throughout COVID. Um, you know, we have not related COVID, but Canadians, uh, you know, canola crop out in Western Canada, we went from like a 21 million ton crop, you know, down to, we we're kind of in that 19 to 21 range for like the last five years. And now we're down to like, you know, 12 to 13 million tons of canola. And so price has to ration demand back for the seed on exports and then also for the crusher locally. So, you know, if you figure on the crush side, we're going to go from, you know, 10 million tons of, of canola meal to, to, you know, maybe seeing, uh, you know, much less or canola seed crushed domestically, you know, maybe they go down to, to, you know, a few million tons this year. And so that's going to really reduce the uh, canola meal availability and the price and the ration. And if you look at maybe some of our different market dynamics, like us locally, um, January forward, when the seaway closes for exports, you know, soybean meal may be uh, cheaper than canola meal locally for us, right? So there's a lot of 
uh, supply and demand dynamics going on at play in the on the rationing side. Um, but I guess on the on the protein markets for sure, we've seen a lot of people booking uh, dairy or, or beef supplements because you know futures got back down to that 320 kind of range. Um, and that's, you know, really the, that's where we were and where we thought things were great a couple of years ago. And, and for years it was pretty flat that uh, we were in that 310 to 320 range and we only stepped out of it for short periods of time. And that's when we had closer to uh, like a billion bushel carryout on soybeans. Mm-hmm. Now we're like, you know, a third of that and we're climbing up from having, you know, you know, about a sixth of that. Um, and so we saw futures come down in that range. A lot of guys started booking uh, booking feed and booking supplements. Um, but again, I think here, uh, when guys are booking, it's going to be more soy based than canola. And uh, a lot of guys, I think probably did book their distillers when distillers were quite cheap. Um, because, you know, per unit of protein looked like nothing was anywhere close to uh, distillers in the ration, right? Yeah. And I know it's, it's uh, not my favorite thing to do. Like I, I much prefer feeding canola over soy, but the price is just too attractive right now. Like I did some pricing this morning. It was only $60 a ton difference with uh, cash price canola versus soy. Um, so it's almost a no brainer to flip back into soy and like you saying with availability in Ontario might become an issue um, going forward. I know I like to have producers covered off, you know, through the summer months when the, when the crush kind of slows down and, and the plants are, you know, looking more at doing crushing soy rather than bringing in canola from the West. And this year it just seems like it doesn't look like much after March or April, we might not be able to get too much canola domestically, even if it is booked, I guess on that side, maybe we normally, if, if you just think of a normal year, if they're crushing 10 million tons and we're normally growing crush uh, with capacity and, and guys utilizing capacity better and the crop growing better, um, you know, then normally you end up with say five and a half to 6 million tons a meal. And we're only using about half of that, uh, half a million tons within all of Canada, right? Um, mm-hmm. U.S. would, I think U.S. takes say three and a half to the big markets like Wisconsin and, and California and some of the big dairy markets. Um, then maybe China on the meal side is a million and a half tons and, and there's not a lot of other places taking canola meal, but so we're always kind of priced at a bit of a premium, um, for, for, you know, shipping small units of cars to Eastern Canada or BC or other markets. And then, uh, you know, trucks around the prairies. Um, so this year when, I guess we don't know how it plays out, but some of these crush plants will be looking at negative margins and making really hard decisions. Do we idle our plant? and just lose, you know, some fixed costs, or do we try to make a go of it here and, and run at reduced rates? Uh, Cause there won't be enough seed to keep everybody going. Um, and so that will really change things. Like we were talking to our, our group in Western Canada and they had to truck uh, some canola meal from, you know, Manitoba out to Alberta and stuff in different regions where there's maybe only one local crusher. Maybe that plant isn't crushing or maybe they already have export uh, requirements to hit. Right. Um, so it's kind of bizarre to think that, you could be in Western Canada and run into a situation where you're tight on canola meal, but, but you know, yeah, it has happened. Right. So that's just, I think the market this year, well, growing conditions, like I know Western Canada have had a pretty tough summer with a lack of rainfall. And it's just, uh, I think it's going to create, I would say a ripple effect, but more of a wave effect around like the Canadian market for proteins, I would think. So. And, and when we talk to different crushers, like there are a lot of, um, dairy producers, especially maybe in the U.S., where you where you're really trying to manage margins, and they'll come in and they'll buy their soy for you know six, nine, twelve months, and they'll have stuff or their canola as well, right? So they 
balance their rash and they lock things in and off they go, a lot of them will have it bought. And so that's really snug things up for maybe the more spot buyers out there where the crush rates are going to be reduced and a certain percentage of that is already spoken for. Um, and so some guys, I guess if you're a little more, um, if you need the product and you're ration balancing for it and you lock it down, you know, there's probably an element of risk you take out of the whole supply chain and, and quality and all the other aspects that, that the more week to week or month to month guys will maybe struggle with when the product is no longer available or is available at an extremely high price, right. That maybe isn't favorable on your, um, say livestock production side. Yeah. I know in the last few years I've been doing, getting more and more interested in the markets and, and trying to control some of the things that we can control, like booking a protein source or a grain source or, or whatever it is throughout, you know, six or nine months or, you know, I really find it helps with producers being able to budget and do cash flow projections and things like that. Like it just gives you a constant, a constant price that you're going to pay for that. And, and you're right. It takes a lot of risk out of it. So we've been very fortunate in Ontario that, Typically, if you pick up the phone to call and order something, you know, you're going to get it within a few days. And over the last little bit, I know, especially on the canola meal and even distillers sometimes too, is like, well, we may not be able to get you some of that this week. It might be next week or two weeks. I know it's a, it gets a little bit, uh, it gets a little bit scary when your whole livelihood kind of depends on making sure the feed stocks and feedstuffs come in like that. So. I guess everybody's hoping that uh, the worst of COVID and the supply chain challenges are behind us and that everything trends in the right direction. So for distillers, you know, people are traveling, going back to work, fuel demands there, uh, the blend rates should stay stable, hopefully, right? And and uh, we'll see a fair amount of distillers be available as we grind corn. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess on the canola side, like it really could, that whole industry is changing on the crush. Um, so if, if they're crushing canola and they normally get uh, say 56, 57% meal and maybe 43, 44% oil. Then, uh, you know, before um, say the meal side used to represent maybe a third of their revenue and now it's about, you know, a fifth. Um, So it's really being driven more by, by the veg oil demand all the time. And uh, so, so it entirely depends on, you know, hopefully restaurants staying open and all the supply chains uh, keeping moving forward and the biodiesel side, um, I guess, taking a lot more soy oil and canola oil, replacing it into more of the restaurants and, and the human food side. So we're, we're, I guess we're keeping an eye on that. And then it depends where, what market you're in too, right? Like for us here, maybe more in the East, you're, you're months away from your canola supply. And then when we talk to our groups down in uh, like Texas, uh, that, that uh, manages Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, um, you know, they're, there's sometimes, uh, I guess it's coming from Western Canada, three different rail lines away from the origin to the destination. So, so some of these things are traveling pretty far and you got to be well bought out ahead to make sure that the crusher can manage their supply chain too, right? Um, but I think, and we've talked about it a few different times with, with some of our sales team and producers and that is that uh, the supply chain world has really changed. And in some ways it's taught us a lot about ourselves and, and formulating and our vendors and, and everything. But uh the container side for sure being being tight has really driven up um, shipping costs and it's gone to the point where, you know, a lot of the analysts have said uh, some of these shipping companies will make 20 years profit in a 12, you know, the last 20 years profit all combined in, you know, 12 months because nobody can ship this stuff fast enough 
uh, it has to move <laughs> there. You know, you're, you're paying through the nose to get some of this stuff executed on and containers are so expensive that some of the commodity side, um, like maybe more on the sugar and that they've actually said, well, let's stop shipping this stuff in containers and let's go, you know, get some bulkers and, and fire stuff across. So it's, I guess, if, if you look at it, it's really played some interesting dynamics. And so that's maybe been a bit of a buying opportunity too, for, for different end users of distillers, um, particularly maybe on the ruminant side where container rates um, coming over are sky high, um, but everything's a little bit slow. And sometimes they're just trying to get these back. Um, container rates maybe are, you know, not quite as firm, but are still pretty firm to take distillers out of the US Midwest back to the um, different Asian end use markets. Um, so, so that's maybe said, you know, I guess if the freight rates have increased, then your, you know, your FOB Midwest U.S. distillers prices are maybe a bit deflated, um, given the extra shipping cost to get product over. Right. So I think it's a little bit more, the end user pays a bit of a premium. The uh, producer gets a little bit of a discount for their product and, and the freight costs have increased how that dynamic all plays out locally. You know, you're not exactly sure, but, uh, for sure the costs locally have maybe been driven down by, by all the shipping costs to get our products uh, from an area of surplus to ship it to some of these areas of deficit where they bring product in, right? Yeah, and so like on the DDG, like I know you talk about crush margins on canola and on soy, like that's just the amount of money that they're making, you know, crushing the the bean and selling the oil, correct? Or canola seed or whatever. Now on the distillers, like when they're producing the ethanol, um, do we see, much margins like like what percentage of the of the ethanol plants uh revenue i guess would come from ethanol versus selling something like a ddg or or a or a fiber syrup or all these other products that come out of there yeah that's a very good question keith and there's some some really interesting dynamics on that side so if you talk to uh i guess i could start at the lowest end if you talk to an oat miller the oat hulls they're selling out of their plant are like, you know, I guess historically, you know, two to 3% of their revenue is their oat hulls. So they don't care. Just, you know, take them and, and get them out of my way. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you work your way up to some of the flour mills where flour mills historically, uh, you know, the, the mids or the shorts that they're selling out to, to the feed guys are maybe, you know, eight to 9% of their revenue. And again, it's just take this stuff and get it out of here. Don't slow my operation down. Right. Then you get into the ethanol plants where historically maybe it's, uh, you know, 30, 35% of their revenue from distillers and they start to take it pretty seriously. And, you know, they won't take much of a discount on their product at times because it really influences their crush margin. Um, so some of them take it very serious. Some of the groups are, especially some of the groups in the U S um, are very serious, multiple plants. They're in all the markets, they're marketing stuff overseas. Um, they do take the distillers marketing fairly well. And if you look locally uh, in our market, there's a group that has kind of four plants locally and the guy in charge of marketing the distillers, he's a, uh, he's actually an old, uh, you know, dairy sales rep or, or, or a nutritionist. Right. And so he understands how it factors into the ration and what ingredients it's competing with and where kind of a fair value is. Um, then you get into, you know, canola is maybe similar to distillers at times, probably, you know, down to about 20% now, but usually was, was say close to a third. Um, then you get into the soybean guys where really we're crushing it for meal. And historically it's kind of the, the opposite side where, you know, two thirds of the revenue is coming from the meal because they're getting, you know, 80% meal, maybe 20% oil. 
Um, and those guys are right on top of everything, right? So it's it's kind of interesting, but I, I guess you have some groups that are marking both soy and canola um, and, and others that focus on different things. But but in general, the ethanol guys are, are very professional and that's kind of uh, the ethanol guys and up, it's a big percentage of their crush margins and they're really keeping an eye on it. And, uh, you know, they take it seriously. It's, it's less about keeping their operations going and more about them maximizing revenue. I never realized that like the meal was that high, like they're crushing for meal, not for oil. I always thought it was the other way around. On soy, maybe that, you know, with oil prices going, that ratio has changed. Like it's come down to almost be even at times. Right. Um, and so <laughs> people will say, you know, you're crushing for oil and, and maybe that's somewhat true where, you know, if uh, beans are tight, you're maybe waiting to make an oil sale before you sell the meal or something. But uh, in general, you know, uh, the, the majority of the margin on the soy side historically has come from the soybean meal side. And that's why those guys, you know, there's, um, th there's no room. They're on top of it. They know the formulas. They know the supply and demand. They know exactly where they need to be uh, into rations type of thing. Yeah. So if you look at like the corn, soy, and canola, it's less of a byproduct and more of a co-product. Yeah. And what about shorts? Like I've, I've heard a little bit about shorts are, you know, they're not really going out very far on availability. Is that typical for this time of year, like with the wheat millers or is this something new or, or what's going on there? I think throughout COVID there was a lot of uncertainty and, and, you know, ethanol got hit really hard. Like ethanol grind times were just all over the place. And I'm sure some plants really struggled um, to find home for ethanol. Um, you know, corn would have been no problem. But uh, uh, flour milling for sure was heavily, heavily impacted. So when we talked to some of the big vendors out there, like the guys that maybe market uh, across, say, like the eastern U.S., a lot of the eastern U.S. flour mills are milling for, um, I guess you would call it uh, like more restaurant eating out type of places, right? Um, versus guys in the more in the interior are, are making snacks and crackers and things that can be sent for your kids at school or, or people are eating at home. And so they were maybe less impacted. So there was still a lot of say mids being produced more in the interior and, and some of the exterior locations were maybe a bit tighter. And so they were at a really strong premium on pricing and they didn't know what they could offer. And now things have kind of come back where some of these other markets uh, and are, you know, were very similar to, to some of the markets along the East coast um, where we were priced fairly high for a while and then pasture conditions got good and, and everything else demand kind of disappeared and our prices just tanked and so there's some really interesting things going on where where especially because truck availability is pretty tight so you'll have markets in uh pennsylvania or other spots railing mids down into you know texas to get rid of them and keep things moving to keep plants going um, and so we've kind of got whiplashed on that side and right now we're at maybe a low point um, they will offer forward now. Everything seems to be stabilizing and, and the whole food industry, you know, hopefully comes back as, as strong as it can. Um, so we we can buy forward. Grind times are pretty good. Um, I guess December is always the worst because a lot of plants will take two weeks down or, or at least a week down. And that's, you know, the only time of the year these flour mills really get time off. Um, so that that's kind of been changing things. And then, you know, as mids or shorts get cheap, they put pressure on gluten feed. Um, you know, which can bring down distillers a bit too into rations and, and, you know, it's all interlinked. So it's, it's been kind of one of those major pressures on some of the byproducts. Um, but I guess regardless of how the pasture conditions are, 
um, say, say in our neck of the woods, they've been really rough in some other areas. So some other areas have really been paying a premium. And uh, yeah, it's been quite a year for, for you know, one market to the next, one vendor to the next. You're having very different conversations with people. Some guys are in areas where they can't get enough byproducts and other guys are just swimming in byproducts and don't know where to send it, right? And they're, they're putting it on rail cars from the East Coast all the way down into Texas type of thing. Yeah, that seems crazy. And then with all the other logistical issues that are going on, it just seems like the 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 dollars are just competing for for movement of products somewhere. So like is there a lot of competition between say goods coming off a freighter versus, you know, let's use this train car unit to send shorts to Texas, for instance. Well, like your logistics is starting to to really be a lot better understood by all parties, right? Because I think there's a lot of companies that maybe took it for granted until it backfired on you. But uh, we were talking to our guys in Texas who uh, run a really phenomenal business down there because they're on huge rail sidings and everything comes in. But there was a point where uh, if if some of their customers came to them and booked last minute, they couldn't get rail cars. Um, so this was maybe last year around this time or different points throughout the year where the U.S. export uh, program is just going full tilt. And they were saying all the origins want to be shipping, you know, 50, 100, you know, plus cars on, on unit trains or, or, you know, shuttle trains back and forth to the Pacific Northwest or down to the Gulf or down to some other end use markets like California and that. Um, and these things wanted to move efficiently and they wanted to move major car units. They did not want to be sending 10 cars at a time down to each mill down in that neck of the woods. So, so our guys down there had stuff on and they were juggling as needed and they have some pretty heavy flat storage down there, like some, some flat storage base that can take, you know, tens of thousands of tons at a time. Uh, but they were still adding trucks on out of Kansas for, for mids and distillers and soy and, and different items. Um, so, so at some point, you know, like nobody has a better infrastructure system than the U S with the, with the barge system and all the rail networks uh, and the trucks and that, but uh their system's been pretty stressed out at times when when exports go into high gear and uh, there's just so much product to move in such a limited window it's got to be moved as efficiently as possible i guess right mm -hmm. it amazes me like every time i sit here and talk to you or talk to anybody else that's kind of in the global supply chain uh business like it's just it's a we're just a we're just a tooth in the cog and there's a lot of there's a lot of things happening all at one time that are all kind of interconnected and intertwined and yeah it's pretty pretty interesting to think about um i kind of want to focus a little bit on like maybe locally ontario midwest i guess is i'll draw say local like what's the what's the corn crop and and what are the quality issues or are there any quality issues and what are the yields and stuff coming in like like is it like, do we have a lot of corn, say, here in the Midwest or Southern Ontario? And, you know, like I'm just talking corn states like Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, like where we would be drying feed stuff from. Yep. I guess there were some guys that were lucky enough to get some really dry corn off early um, in our market. Right. Um, but a lot of stuff mm -hmm. has been difficult to get the equipment out there with with uh, how wet the ground's getting. But but in general, if you look at the USDA, um, I guess, crop progress report, like like harvest is going fairly well compared to like a five-year average. Um, there certainly are some regions 
that had to skip beans and move to corn or maybe have to sit back. I mean, we locally are having a heck of a time getting the crop out of the field, but, but overall as a marketplace, you know, it's, it's, it's going quite well. Right. Um, yields are pretty strong. And, and I think the market kind of got surprised when the USDA increased, you know, corn yield um, because everybody thought they were maybe being a little too aggressive to begin with. And there was a lot of, say social media pressure from from producers in different markets posting about their yields and their yields were not what they maybe thought they would be due to disease or or some you know some dryness or whatever um, but in general i think the marketplace is now falling through and saying there's pretty good yields on corn out there um, you know things are coming off pretty well even on the western side like some spots in say you know southeast minnesota and stuff aren't that bad compared to the drought was more, you know, Dakotas and in and, and Canada and some other regions. But uh, you know, I guess throughout harvest, old crop to new crop, there's always some some uh, transitions and and some areas are ahead of others. But uh looks like you know we're gonna have pretty decent production. But in general on the grain side, I guess there's no real, you know, there's not a whole heck of a lot of downside with just how tight the world is and and specifically on wheat, right? Um and on some other items like like corn, probably it seems expensive, but uh, it's fully justified to be where it is. It's got some carry, and uh, you know, I guess the markets we're living with today, we're kind of waiting for see how the South American harvest might be or some other news. But uh, I guess the trade kind of sees like it's, you know, we it is what it is. We're we're looking at a pretty good crop, but uh, we got to be building our carryout stocks for the next few years, right? Um, I guess the main thing if you're looking at corn would just be the you know, corn and wheat maybe aren't so much fighting for acres, but but corn and soybeans are. And a major impact on the corn side will be crop inputs, just with inflation overall, but also with, with global shipping. When you start to look at fertilizer and, and some of these other uh, input costs, they've gone up dramatically. So that corn to bean ratio, I guess we always used to look at like 2.5, 2.6 um, beans to corn for kind of equal profitability, um, for the producer, right? Well, now so, you're, you're looking more at two, two to one almost or numbers that are unheard of, right, Keith? So what do you mean that? Like you have to have two bushels of bean to one bushel oh, price, of corn? Sorry, sorry price wise, Keith. So just rough math, if we had oh, okay, okay, okay. $5 corn, you know, we're, we're thinking we need 1250 beans, um, but mm -hmm. that number might come closer to, to kind of two to one, right? Um, maybe you get closer to $11 beans and, you know, 550 corn or something, which is, not normal, but I guess when you work it back to uh, to a to a cash cropper, it's it, you know revenue neutral. So a lot of people still think you could have 90 million acres of corn in the U.S. next year. Um, Argentina's gone pretty hard. Brazil will maybe soften up because of crop input costs. Um, but in general, the world is screaming a little more for oil seeds than than say corn. So we're probably slowly trying to dig ourselves out of a hole on the oilseed side globally and, and build stocks. And uh, maybe soy does have to win some marginal acres versus corn, right? Yeah. And it's interesting. I know I, a few of my friends are, are cash croppers and to listen to them talk about what inputs, especially on nitrogen and apparently Roundup, I've been seeing some stuff on social media about Roundup and <laughs> Just glyphosate, like the price has just gone up phenomenally. But, but the long story short is that these producers that would normally grow, 
you know, two thirds corn, one third beans are talking about stepping back and maybe, you know, going 50, 50 or, or even less and maybe incorporating some wheat because wheat seems to be a strong price as well. So, and they're just strictly looking at input costs because it's eating up their margin pretty quick. Yeah. And I guess worldwide, I would like to understand some of the energy markets a little better and, and some of the things going on in Europe. Um, but then also, you know, South America, North America, Asia, but, uh, sounds like there's some pretty interesting policies and some supply chains and, and different things that are changing and, you know, fertilizers and, uh, some of the other, you know, I guess, secondary products are becoming incredibly firm, uh, you know, natural gas and, and some other things, their trade flows are kind of changing. Um, it really makes you realize how interconnected the world is, right? Like when you're talking about corn to bean ratios and, you know, canola and soy crush margins and how are guys doing on ethanol and um, grind rates and uh, really makes you realize we're, we're connected internally between all our commodities, but we're also connected with other regions and, and other entire Mm -hmm. commodity markets like the, you know, petrol and and energy size of things. Right. Um, It's, I don't know, Keith, it it is cool to, to try to keep up on it Mm -hmm. and then talk with guys like yourselves and try to be on farm. But, uh, Really, the world's becoming so complex. You need to stay on top of these things uh, full time to know exactly what's going on almost day by day, right? Yeah. And I kind of want to circle back to booking feed. So we've kind of laid out what we're seeing in the markets with the different feed stocks and things like that. Like, does it make sense to book? Like, what kind of gap should we look at, I guess, between cash price and futures when we look at... uh, like booking a feed like i know soy meal i'll just use soy meal for an example um near price or the cash price um i think there was like a two weeks ago i had some producers book and i thought there was somewhere like a 50 dollars spread where the futures were about 50 dollars less than what um cash price was so they went ahead and they booked some some soy meal just to kind of you know do some do some feedstock budgeting like is that something that we should be looking at like i i'm And just in in general, Keith, I think that's where maybe booking your feed and being less of a spot market buyer is very advantageous at times. Um, Because on that one, specific to soybean meal, we had, you know, Hurricane Ida come through and cause some pretty serious damage in the southeast there along the Gulf. And so some export terminals were pretty heavily damaged. Some others were without power. And so they were really struggling to get barges unloaded. Um, and keep some of these, um, you know, bulk vessels getting loaded and, and getting out and keeping, keeping trade on pace, right? Um, so next thing you know, soybean meal basis numbers go crazy everywhere. And, uh, you know, there's a bunch going out the Pacific Northwest, the Gulf is behind. Um, soy basis really got kind of a fire under it. I guess you also had maybe some extra demand because China is curbing energy use and there's some crushed plants down over there. So there's maybe more um, soybean meal, you know, finished soybean meal going over than say raw beans. Um, but so soy basis has been firm for a little bit here and it's probably gonna remain firm through most of November and then hopefully tail off as we get caught up on some exports and, and some other items, right? Um, but, but soybean meal basis has gone to numbers that are extremely, extremely firm. And so if we had have had, you know, if your feed mill has product booked for you and you've got the feed price, you know, you avoid some of these big catastrophes um, where where some of the more spot buyers end up paying premiums when things aren't going optimally, right? 
Um, I think so that's why you've seen a huge premium on, on soybean meal recently. Historically, we're at far softer numbers. So when we talk to our um, Southern US cohorts or our Western Canadian cohorts or, or in our market, like we're maybe 20, 25 bucks, you know, US a short or something premium to maybe where we normally are, maybe even 30 in some markets. But, uh, you know, for us locally, I guess when the seaway closes, soybean meal will become dramatically cheaper when we can no longer export. Mm -hmm it pretty much goes to a level where we don't want, or they don't want, you know, us rail or, or us trucks working in here to balance supply and demand. So they have to go to a price point that keeps that out of here. And, and the plants that are supplying into our market find another home to go to. Um, but so I guess in general, soybean meal futures have been really low, but, but basis has been kind of artificially high. There's been a really strong carry in soybean meal futures, which I guess kind of tells you it's discounted nearby. Um, strong premium out in forwards. Um, so maybe bookings are more appropriate for, you know, three or six month time periods, or, or I'm not sure what we're looking at. Uh, but if you looked at markets right now, futures are pretty flat until you get like a South American harvest time window. Um, and then we actually get a little bit more carry kind of going forward into the summer. And so maybe if you go to your feed company and you want to book soy or proteins, there's probably going to be a premium built into the forward time periods, just with all these policy changes and, and trade issues um, that if, if crushers had to sell you something next summer, they probably build in a risk premium to cover themselves to make sure they can execute on the business to you. Right. Um, but we have seen a fair number of say supplements booked for, for dairy and, and some beef producers ourselves um, just to control that protein portion of your spend um, because proteins started to look pretty affordable in the forward time periods. And uh, it was more the energy side or maybe complete feeds where we've really struggled uh, to see much action there just with, with how firm uh, wheat for us, which was a, kind of our primary feeding grain um, until we got our new crop corn harvest off. Um, you know, I guess we had some pretty high price tags on feed bills and, and people were just going to sit back and, and uh, be more spot buyers in our market than, and looking ahead right yeah i know and i think uh buying in the spot market is probably the right thing to do sometimes and sometimes it's getting booked out ahead a little bit is the right thing to do but it's hard to differentiate between the two <laughs> yeah and and normally you know for for canola in our market you got to be three or four months out so they can buy it out west get a 10 elevator rail it to thunder bay you know get the vessel to show up float it down to your local crusher all throughout the lakes or the seaway, then bring it in, turn it into meal and fire it out to you by truck. Right. And then this year you want to talk to them about something that far out, you know, they may not even know where the seeds coming from. Um, you know, they probably, especially some of these restaurants or other end users, like they may be having negative, if they haven't been managing things like their margins may be pretty rough. So they're probably spot buyers on the oil side, especially with a bit of an inverse out there. Right. So, uh, um, you want to talk to someone about three or four months out. It's probably the worst thing you want to do right now, maybe on canola for us, right? So um, I guess you have to be adaptable and you have to be working with your, your feed sales rep and, and you got to be kind of paying attention to it and you have to be, uh, I guess it's just adaptable, right? Um, you can't, you can't come at the market with, with one strategy all the time, or it's, it's going to put you in a bad spot at some point, right? No. And that's the conversation I had, I've been having with producers is, you know, for instance, if we booked, I think it was soy meal, we had got some booked at 450 or $460 a ton. 
if you're happy with paying that and know that's what it's going to cost you and you've got your risk kind of spread out over the next few months at that price, are you going to be okay with it if it drops below it, I guess is the question you have to ask. But luckily enough, I think the more that we get looking at it into this is that it's been advantageous. I know it's a, it's a win-loss thing. I, I talked to some producers and we booked some canola and we lost on it. But I talked to some producers and we booked some robot pellet and we won on it. So I think you just got to take the good and the bad that maybe not every time is going to be advantageous for you. But as long as you're okay with the price that you're going to pay for it, then maybe that's all we have to think about. Yeah. And some of these big groups, um, like like big consultants uh, on the feed side um, that are managing multiple dairies or, or really on my perspective, when you're talking to canola plants or soy plants, like they really strongly know their margin structure and they know what their targets are. They know their fixed and variable costs and what their budgets are for the year. And when oil spikes and it goes to numbers that are kind of unheard of and they've got great margins, you know, they have no problem locking stuff in. And it's probably easier on the commodity side than say on the livestock side, because um, I guess if a crusher can't get things bought or can't sell things, you can always just buy soybean futures or canola futures and, and sell the meal and sell the oil and put their crush on and then buy those components in as they go. Right. Um, but I think they're always thinking about margins. They're always thinking about returns. And that's where I think for us, um, you know, when we're dealing with some of these big hog guys that are, that are right on top of their numbers, at least, you know, in our market compared to many smaller supply managed customers, um, these guys are, are right on top of things and they're saying, Hey, some of these margins are fantastic. We can lock them in for forward time periods. Like this is a no brainer. Let's book this and walk away. Everyone's adding value to each other. Off we go. And it's kind of a great relationship, right? Mm -hmm. um, versus sometimes when we have different other sectors, uh, I mean, if, if we're not right on top of it or we're not sure what our benchmark is, or we're not sure why we're booking, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to have a conversation. It's almost like you're trying to talk them into booking. And then, you know, your response, it's almost like you're speculating, right? Then you're almost responsible for, for how it plays out for someone versus really, uh, I prefer the relationship where it's more a partnership where we're all working together. We're, we're uh, talk, you know, a livestock producer can tell me where their margins are. We can talk about where some of the ingredients are and we can work together to make sure that everybody's locking in a fair margin and, and that we're all comfortable with things, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, you got to be comfortable with it. So, and I know like from the business side of things, it just makes it easier to do your cash flow projections and things like that. Cause you know, when you get your feed bill at the end of the month, whether it be through the mill or through a commodity supplier, you kind of know what it's going to be. So you can, you can budget for it. Right. So the answer is no answer <laughs> at the end of the day. Kind of like. Kind of like uh, grain marketing plans and that, right? It, I guess it yeah. all depends case on case. What's your what's your cost of production on soy or corn? What's what's yeah. the local ethanol plant paying? You know what? You know how leveraged are you? Or what do we need to do here? What do you need cash flow? Like I guess everything's always case by case basis, and you kind of got to walk through it together, right? So, yeah, I know that, and and that's the hardest part I find with booking commodities is that, like it's it's a lot easier if you're doing it on the supply side on say something like corn compared to you know producing milk or, or meat sometimes because the protein price has such a huge influence on your cost of production because it typically is the most expensive component of the diet 
um, on the livestock side of things. So, you know, maybe hedging your bets on some of that stuff isn't necessarily a bad thing to do. And, and Keith, a question for you. I know a lot of guys really love canola and the diet on, on the dairy side or, or even ever other areas of, uh, livestock production, right. But particularly the dairy loves canola yep. for, for the production, the, the palatability to get the, to get the cattle eating and, and some other aspects. What, what is it, uh, you know, what is it that makes it so attractive? And then if it is that advantageous, um, what does it take to maybe get someone, you know, maybe not right now in a more normal year to, to book ahead or, or to feel comfortable with booking? Well, I think from the, from the nutrition side of thing, like it, it's a good source of, of protein. It's got a good amino acid profile and there's some uh, fatty acids in there that, you know, there's a lot more research being done on, but there's some, definitely some fatty acids in there that are beneficial to animal health, especially the cows with early lactation. On um, the second question is, um, where do you feel comfortable booking it at? I always look at the spread of it compared to soy. Like I, I, I really love canola and I love keeping it in the diet, but if soy is a better price, you know, I look at that 80 to a hundred dollars a ton difference. So if it's more or sorry, less than say, if soy is less than $80 a ton difference than canola, I'll probably go with soy. And actually we did that today. I booked some, um, not necessarily booked, but I, I bought some soy meal for a customer just because it was like a $65 difference. And I'm like, well, you're going to get more bang for your buck, I guess, per unit of protein out of, out of the soy. If it's any, say more than 80 to, and especially once it's over a hundred dollars, it's a no brainer to go with canola over soy. That's just in my opinion, from what I've seen. And like we said, the cattle do well on both. So it's just a matter of, of cost to the producer and, and making sure that we can produce uh, milk at a, at a cheaper price because we are limited on how much milk we can ship. So the other way to, to increase margin is to control cost. So I look at it like that. And then when going to book at book, say something like canola or soy, especially on the canola side, I look out to times of year. Like I've been burnt before where, you know, we're doing really good on canola. It gets to August and guess what? You call your local supplier for a truckload or whatever. And they can't get it because the crush plants either they don't, they're not crushing it at the time because they're shut down or it's not in their budget. They've got it all spoken for. So that meal's going out the door to people that have it contracted already. Um, so I've been burned on that a few times. So it's just, I like to make sure that they're covered um, through the end of old crop and just into new crop to make sure that they, they do have supply for the farm. And it's probably difficult on your end because you have to, you know, I guess your, your protein, even your, your protein uh, at the farm level is broken down into multiple different components. So you'll, you'll probably still only feed so much canola or soy or distillers, or, or can you guys really push it to go is a hundred percent of the protein ever supplied just canola based Keith, or, or do you still have to juggle it? Uh, we try to juggle it just to try and save some money, especially on the amino acid side, like just for amino acid balancing more is better sometimes because you do get different amino acids from different protein sources. In saying that I have farms that that's their whole source of protein is canola and it works fine. But when the price gets high, then you start looking at it to see if you can save some money somewhere. But if the price is relatively low, you know, producers are okay with just buying and dealing with one feed because then it comes down to, well, there's shrink on the farm. So if you have one ingredient versus multiple ingredients, 
um, you're just going to have less shrink. It comes down to uh, cash flow too. Like if a producer is saying buying a load of canola and they're going to keep it for, you know, three to four months, you know, one commodity every three to four months isn't that bad on cash flow. Like you can spread it out. But when they have to say buy a truck that's offset at a different time, you know, it can get a little bit tight on operating lines and or just even in like straight cash out the door to try and get some of these products. So you really just have to have the producer's goals in mind and kind of have an idea on the market what the protein a unit of protein unit pro energy is worth um, and and what the program is looking for. Like when we're doing ration balancing, like if we're on a heavy corn silage diet versus a heavy haylage diet, like the program's going to look for different uh, nutrient qualities or, or different nutrients. So we have to be kind of cognizant of that as well. You know, it's one thing just to balance diets and, but when you start taking into feed prices and things like that and trying to do what's best for the cow and what's best for the producer's bank account, it gets really interesting. So it, it's one of the things I really like about the job is that, you know, it's, it's not every day is the same and not every farm's the same. So it's trying to do what's right for that producer to, to make sure that they're uh, they're happy with their feed dollar spend because they're going to spend it. So might as well be happy with it. Right. <laughs> I always appreciate talking to you about that type of stuff. I guess, you know, our worlds are similar, but different, but it sounds like yeah. still on your side, it depends on bunk space and what you can store and, and what you're feeding yeah. and how big you are. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess it's always case by case basis. Eh, Keith? Yeah. It's hard for a, like a 70 or hundred, like I even say the limit's almost 200 cows where, you know, buying a truckload of commodities maybe might not make sense, you know, because you're just not going to go through it fast enough, especially on something like distillers, like it can go rancid on here. It can go bad depending on your storage system. Right. So is that the right decision? Like you'd have to weigh a lot of what ifs, what ifs, what ifs into the, into the question that the producer asks. So the other thing I wanted to talk about too, Dustin was global supply. I know uh, people who have been feeding uh, palm fat have uh, seen the price increase substantially, you know, I would say since late winter, early spring. And can you maybe walk us through um, some of the things that are happening in the global supply chain issue? I know you mentioned before, um, some things with uh, container prices and uh, things like that that are affecting it right now. So, so palm oil is one I'm not the uh, um, I, I'm not the lead on, and and so, but I can tell you that on the veg oil side, just in general, when you're looking at it from the commodity perspective, you have an inverse in the in the veg oil markets, right? And so, what when the market's inverted, that means you know prices are more expensive today than tomorrow or next year right and so that's the market really trying to ration demand so so the world really is that tight from a veg oil standpoint that these prices are are trying to uh tell you to go look at alternative products or or to entice you know more crush or, or more planting of those acres so we're really in an interesting time where where uh we're really testing the limits of what different supply chains and what different economic pictures look like to, to change things. Right. So if you look at palm oil prices uh, in Asia, like they're pretty much uh, record highs, they're incredibly, incredibly high values. If you look at uh, like veg oil over here in, in North America, whether it's 
soy or canola or, or really anything else all the way down into like the animal tallows. Um, the whole complex is extremely firm with biodiesel and some of the other items going on. But then, uh, you know, palm, palm fats have been further complicated by, uh, you know, the fun of Buttergate and everything where, where some of the demand started to get less lessened and some of the suppliers started to get a little cautious. And so su supplies got run down. And then as supplies are getting run down, this whole uh, container Geddon incident happens, right? Where, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not that up to speed on the shipping side, but you'll hear about, you know, 30 different container ships sitting outside of a port in, you know, some of these major ports like LA or, or, or Vancouver or different markets. And, you know, back in the day, I guess, container ships only had a few thousand containers on them. Now they have tens of thousands of containers on them, right? And so if, if the container yard's a mess or other things are happening or the crew has COVID or has to quarantine, like pretty much the whole supply chain just grinds right down, right? Um, kind, kind of like, I guess, the backward version of an avalanche, right? Like, we're having a few issues and it just snowballs all the way up the whole supply chain. And so we're, you know, that's why they're seeing so many different issues and that's why freight rates have gotten extremely expensive. So if you look at the palm fats, you've got an extremely expensive price at the origin. Um, then you've got extremely expensive freight over here and uh, really the execution of getting your containers unloaded in Vancouver and, and freighted over to wherever we are out here. Um, it, it, it's kind of turned into a whole nightmare, right? Um, and people didn't used to micromanage individual containers at a time, but I've heard situations where, you know, containers are getting split and everyone's keeping an eye on things. It's, it's really increased costs. Um, and, and really, you know, hopefully in, in a year or two, you clean, you know, this thing gets caught up, but, uh, like, like it will take a considerable amount of time and a lot of ingenuity and a lot of bulk ships going over to handle containers or, or, you know, things completely changing around uh, within local market dynamics. Like maybe if you can't get palm fat, you're not feeding it. Right. Maybe, maybe those are the questions. If you've always fed it and you love it. Um, I don't know what the economics are there, Keith, you, you would obviously know better than I would, but maybe these are the questions we need to be having because some of these markets are so tight. Um, they really are trying to ration demand and incentivize people to find other solutions or to uh, to manage things in in ways that aren't the way we normally think about it. Um, and and so palm fats would definitely one I could see being extremely frustrating at the farm level, where uh, you know I guess if we if you didn't have a bottery and if you did have a bot you can't get it. Um, I could see that being extremely frustrating, seeing the prices increase and maybe not knowing what's going on in the container rate side uh, or not what's going on in kind of veg markets uh, globally and, and how tight oil seeds have gotten um, and how additional demand has grown from a food perspective, but also um, in a big way from the biodiesel aspect, right? Like they were calling some, the new kind of biodiesel era was kind of like another ethanol type of boom where there was some new technology and some new plants that made it real easy to convert to biodiesel and not just to convert and then blend, you could go a hundred percent onto say soy oil, convert it to biodiesel and, and put that straight into to vehicles versus having to blend it like the gasoline and the ethanol side. Right. Mm -hmm. So some science has changed. Some of the, you know, supply chains have changed and some policies have changed and that whole market kind of got turned upside down in, in a pretty short window. Right. Yeah, and I think it's not just palm. I think it's all fats. Like I've heard that about tallow or, um, you know, your 
I don't know what the like the steric acid. So your trade names would be like an energy booster, uh, some of your palm steric blends and things like that. Like it just seems like everywhere across the supply chain on energy sources like fat sources like that is gone a little bit uh, gone a little bit squirrely in the last six months or so. Well, maybe even eight months, but. And, and there will be an end to it. And, and uh, yep. well, you, you hope there's an end to it, but it, I guess it's not a simple solution and it's not a short timeline. Um, so that's one that probably plagues people for the next little while and until we can get back to a little bit more normalcy. Well, I'll tell you, it's, I think producers out there are feeling less of a pinch with protein prices backing off. Like I know some of the grain prices and, and fat prices are still, I'd say, inflated. Um, but with the the protein prices coming back down to a little bit more normal to what we've seen in the past, you know, several years, I think it's kind of uh, taking a little bit of the pressure off of of producers. So, and and locally, we've seen a lot of things going on on the pork meal side with uh, uh, plants that were down because some of these packing plants were really struggling with COVID. Um, or some other dynamics going on that have really made supply tight and then driven price up. But but hopefully as we get back more to normal again, you can only say that so many times before you yeah. give up on it because it's pretty slow. But, uh, you know, if we ever do get back to a more normal world, you know, maybe pork meal uh, settles down and is another item that that's price competitive in the dairy ration, right? Yeah. It's at, we're at this point, it's like, what is normal? Is this normal? <laughs> but that's a good point you say about the pork meal. Cause I know like on the processing end of things on the, on the meat side, like when we start talking about some animal vegetable blend fats or tallow and things like that, like those are coming out of the process, like the meat processing. So if they're not processing pigs or chickens or whatever, like we're not, we're not getting the fat rendered to, to make energy sources as well. Right. So been been quite quite a year or it's a year and longer right um but yeah but i guess like you said the, the market is maybe taking some steam off on the protein side and and maybe that's an opportunity for different people to to manage some costs to protect some margin and and uh you know long term i guess we will you know high prices do cure uh high prices we will plant more acres of what we need we will ration demand of that expensive stuff um, with, with some cheaper product or, or maybe actually destroy demand. Um, mm -hmm. And eventually we, we will build some stocks and, and we'll climb back out of this thing a little bit. Right. Yeah. And I always figure like I've been in the egg biz for a little bit now, but it just seems like historically there's 10 year cycles, right? So you get three years of high, three years of medium, three years of low prices. So I think we're just kind of, on that medium to high right now. And we went through some low prices a couple of years ago. So it's just, it's part of the cycle. It's part of the, the weather cycle. It's part of the commodity producer, like the producers, you know, when they see high corn price, so they plant more corn and less beans. So then beans go up, then they plant more beans. Right. So it's just, it's all cyclical and it's just riding the surfing the wave, I guess. So. Yeah. And then they, uh, you always have to be concerned about different La Nina concerns in South America and, and all kinds yeah. of items. But I'm, I guess we can, right now, we can just cross our fingers that we've got a good South American, uh, you know, grain and oil seed crop coming at us. And then another good, you know, Northern hemisphere crop because Australia's, you know, in the world scene, Australia's kind of a rock star. Like there's a few places that are doing great. Russia was supposed to just be fantastic. And then I guess they took a little steam off of, uh, 
what their wheat production would be and what their exports would be. And that gave wheat markets a little more life too, right? But uh, some of these things, there's only a few markets that are really doing well on. And, and so when there's only a few origins and there's lots of buyers, um, it really does bid things up. So I guess we just need, uh, you know, magically nice, consistent uh, crop yields all across the globe for a couple of years and, and, you know, life will be great. Right. But obviously some regions will struggle. And I guess we need to pay attention to those to know when the right time is to, to book different items or to look at bookings or to be talking about them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that, uh, I think it's just talking to people like yourself too, that are kind of a lot more adept at what's and a lot more involved in what's going on in the day to day really helps, uh, just kind of gain a little per perspective on my point or on my side, because I've got a lot of other things that I'm, that I'm thinking about. So to have somebody that we can bounce some of these commodity ideas off is really great, Dustin. So I, uh, I think at that will, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, uh, I know we have some pretty good discussions on markets and things like that. And I really appreciate your input and I, and I hope the listeners do too. So thanks again, Dustin. And, uh, Enjoy this gloomy late September weather. Or, thanks, sorry, thanks. October. We're October. I don't even know what we're talking about. But <laughs> well, thanks for the opportunity and thanks for your time, Keith. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the dairy team at Trout Nutrition Canada and our Suregain dealer partners. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast player, and please leave us a review. If you'd like more information about today's discussions, please reach out. We have left our contact information in the show notes. I would also like to extend a special thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.